Data storytellers. This is Laszlo here. And today on the show, I have with me Nina Moncton. Nina is the head of data at the JAWS Group. And today we are going to touch on some exciting data related topics. So first of all, Nina, welcome on the show. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Yeah, absolutely. And I look forward to diving into some of these areas that we already talked about um, when, we, when we were not on the air. And uh, those people who are not familiar with you, so uh, you are listed uh, in the uh, Data IQ uh, 100, I think, in, in 2021. So a lot of our audience members will be probably familiar with you, but those who are not, uh, what brought you into the world of data? What, what brought you to this uh, role now over at Just Group? Well, what brought me into the role of data, I guess, was um, my initial career. Um, I started out working as a, a statistician. So that was my route into data. Um, and then since then, I've sort of worked my way through to managing data teams, um, looking after entire <laughs> data departments, uh, and really, uh, you know, helping organizations to transform um, how they use data and, and what they're doing with data. So that's that's been my career <laughs> in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so always, always, and I, I suppose I'm I'm quite quite a nosy person, which helps when it comes to uh, to data. Mm -hmm. So being a nosy person, being genuinely curious about truth, yes. right? A lot of a lot of people actually end up being senior data executives at, at larger companies, following that intuition, following that call. And you worked at the NHS, so a lot of our audience will be North American; they might not even know what the NHS is. Um, but you were in a leadership development program there, and you actually became the chief data officer for the business service authority part of that yes. so so yes. how did that happen because that was quite a journey over 13 years um yeah it i suppose it was it was it was mostly to do with um the data that we held so just for your american audience the mm -hmm. the, the nhs is is it's a national health service so essentially it covers um what happens to to people in um england wales Scotland and Northern Ireland when it comes to, to their health. Um, Our US so, audience might even ask, like, what's a national health <laughs> service? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so it covers it covers everything really from um birth through to um you know anything in between. So whenever you get ill in the UK, you go and see you can go and see a GP and mm -hmm. it's free. Um there are some charges for some things like eyesight, so glasses, um dentistry there's charges for, for for some of that but most of it is free so if you need to go to hospital uh you you can go to hospital it, it's all covered by it's essentially a tax scheme mm -hmm. so um so the the business services authority is um is an organization that essentially makes a lot of transactional sort of financial transactional um activities for the NHS so two of the things they do one is they pay um, dentists the other is they pay pharmacists now um, pharmacy is, is a huge amount of the NHS bill so when I worked there it was in excess of nine billion pounds a year um, and it's you know it, it, it grows every year because more and more people use drugs and drugs get more expensive mm -hmm. and new drugs come online and, and all the rest of it so 
there was a lot of scope there for um, understanding, you know, really how that day, how that money was being spent, and where there were opportunities to to save money. And um, and so the role kind of grew. I was working, I was mostly working in the dentistry side of it, and um, dentistry side was quite advanced in what it was doing with its data. And the reason it was advanced was because it was holding a more granular level of data than the pharmacy part was. So I said, well, you know, really, we're throwing away a lot of data that we're processing, but we're not then keeping it to do anything useful with it. Um, and I <laughs> spent a lot of time um, basically talking to very senior people, because I wasn't that senior in the organization at the time, saying to them, you know, look, there's real opportunity here. We're, we're, we, should, we should think beyond the, because um, there were lots of concerns about governance, information governance. And I said, yeah, but we should really think beyond that and look at, you know, what's the value of having this data at a, a more granular level? So eventually, <laughs> we, we, we did, we gave it a go. So we managed to get hold of some, some of the um, data that was at patient level. And then we started to, you know, I got some data scientists to start looking at it. And we started running some hypotheses through around, you know, what might be going on, what, and we really focused in on the, the fraud and error angle. So we were really looking at, you know, how could people be manipulating the system or whether would there be waste in the system? And we, we did find, we found a lot um, of things that were going on that where we could be saving a lot of money. So then what we started to do was to look at, okay, so how can we build this insight to show the people who are managing um, the budgets where they're losing money and and then it's over to them to have the conversations with their clinicians to say you know look you're prescribing an expensive um, drug when you could be prescribing a generic one that's cheaper or it looks like you're over prescribing to a particular patient so there was lots and lots of insight then that we were able to un sort of reveal um, and then that was what we were doing was building out that service to provide that insight back to the NHS so they could then use it to save lots of money, <laughs> essentially. So, so that's what that was what I was doing at the NHS. And it was really um, it was a, it was quite a complex project because the there were so many stakeholders involved. Um, and if you think about it, you've got you've got the sort of the government department who ultimately are responsible for for the funding and you know, the development of, of the clinicians and the relationship with with the people on the ground who are managing those clinicians then you've actually got the people who are managing the local um, activity and then you've got the people who are delivering it so it was quite, it was quite a layered mm. um, and complex stakeholder environment so there were there were quite a few challenges along the way some of them quite um, you know, not things that I, I would have realised. Um, so, for example, uh, there were quite a few businesses who had uh, established themselves because because the NHS likes to have data and because it struggles to get hold of the data and the people to, to in, in the organisation to, to do things. There are people who'd built services that they were selling back to the NHS NHS data, but they were packaging it up and add, adding value to it. And then, of course, I came along with a with a new product that gave them a lot of more detailed information than they currently had that was available to them for free because we were essentially paid by uh, paid for by um, 
the central NHS funding to say here here's lots of data that you can use and it's available to you and so that that upset quite a few <laughs> quite a few organizations I hadn't really um you know considered how much sway as well they would have with politicians and um yeah there, there were people who were trying to set up businesses and and I did get quite a bit of um yeah well I mean we were trying to do the right thing we were we were coming at it from a you know we've got this data we want to help the NHS to get to it quickly and to make decisions quickly um and and yeah that, so so that was that surprised me somewhat um mm. but you know it was it was a very successful it was a very successful project and it released a lot of data that wasn't previously available and you know and, and now there's a lot more open data around prescribing as well which which just wasn't there before so all sorts of groups of people benefited from it um you know mental health child mental health diabetes you know there were so many so many mm. groups that that got value from it very interesting actually this is so <laughs> it's so funny that you mentioned uh that oh you kind of ruffled some feathers and 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 mm. you, you, you seem to be stepping on toes, even though from your perspective, all you were doing is revealing the truth that was there, you know, bringing yep. in services and capabilities that were uh, enabling the organization to see reality. And apparently it's it's quite a surprise that you get a lot of pushback from that. Mm. And, yeah. a, and as a leader, that's like, a, that's like a, an interesting responsibility and challenge of, okay, what do I do here? Uh, what, how, how should I position myself? Like how assertive should I be or how humble should I be by actually maybe taking a step back and listening and maybe like tactfully deploying truth where it's well received. What was it, what were your experiences kind of uh, uh, forming here? Because I know, and we can talk about like how you then went to AXA and the just group, but, but uh, from these experiences, uh, uh, how, how did your conception of what a data leader should actually do and how she should uh, really embody some of those qualities uh, transformed over that time? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, the lesson that I learned um, as a result of that was the stakeholder, the stakeholder engagement, the stakeholder analysis, and, and maybe working through, you know, some of these scenarios. And I think what was, what was unfortunate was it, it, it kind of became a growing noise. Um, that then impacted the um the senior civil servants um as opposed to me sort of knowing about it first and then being able to to brief um other people on on how that might play out and also you know for them to have the opportunity to to give a bit of direction on it so i mean in the end they they did support us because ultimately what they want to do is is enable the NHS to be able to do as much as it can without having to rely on on paying other organisations to do it. But um, yeah, there was there was a lot of there were a lot of bumps in the road. So I, th I suppose one of the things is you know be resilient to that. Um, <laughs> you can't you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. I suppose there there were you know yes there were a few business models broken along the way. But I think you know like with any disruption. Mm -hmm. those businesses adapted and they moved and, and they did different things and actually probably benefited in the long run from it because there was much better data available. So whatever they were doing, 
they could they could carry they could still carry on doing it mm. um i think it was just the initial shock mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah and, and i suppose that goes back to 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 all organizations in how do you prepare how do you prepare for change how do you prepare the people who are going to be impacted for that change and um yeah unfortunately sometimes you will miss groups of people and, and need to go back and and do something to to sort of pick up the um to get them back you know back on track and up to speed and understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it um but yeah that that happens whatever doesn't it it's it's one of those things when you're when you're doing change yeah and i actually see like an interesting analogy uh forming here maybe because we're talking about the nhs <laughs> but it's it's almost like you said that it's, this is disruptive so interestingly enough truth in a large organization tends to be disruptive well what does that expose that this fact that you find some information you drive some insights from it which reflect the truth and then when you try to deploy it in the organization, you get pushback. It's, it's, it's disruptive. What, what, what that means is that whatever the modus operandi was before was not based on truth. So it's almost like when you bring, and this is natural, it's, it's like basically human nature, that uh, personal perspectives and personal interests start to play a role instead of objective truth. It's just you know how yes. societies work. And um, basically you as a data professional, you come in as the physician who have a different perspective and ultimately you need to sell that you know because the the medicine a lot of times is bitter and and it's almost like it's your responsibility to make sure that the the organization takes that medicine and can ultimately be healed from that disease of not working in a data driven or data centered uh way so did you find the need to sell this like actively sell it because if, even if you think about a surgeon you know when you need a heart surgery sometimes the the surgeon will need to explain why you need it why you need that urgently how that will help you and get you to actually comply with something that's a huge thing and you know, go under anesthesia, yeah. all that stuff. I don't know where this analogy yeah. breaks yeah. down, by the way, but I, I think it kind of holds up. Well, I, I suppose it's a team sport, isn't it? Um, to, data can do so much. And um, and I suppose going back to, to the, the patient analogy, really, if, if I was to, you know, if you were to be told every single thing that is wrong with you or might be wrong with you, you'd probably be quite overwhelmed and think, oh my God, you know, I, d- I don't know where to start. And I suppose that that's part of the art of, um, you know, how do we as data leaders help people to act on what we're telling them? So with the, with the NHS example, I mean, it was, it was very much, okay, so, you know, there, there will be various programs that will be running as part of, you know the the NHS plan which will look at particular illnesses that they're trying to reduce or or awareness or anything else so you look at okay well how can I support those because if I can use data to help support those aims then I know there's that wrapper going back to the team sport bit there's the wrapper around it to support those people that need to be doing something to do something um and I suppose that was that was part of, OK, how do we build the success here? Because the success is only really driven by what people do with the information you give them and how they use that. So so sort of partnering with other parts of the NHS to say, OK, how can we help? So the mental the child mental health one is a is a classic. You know, there was a, a group of people looking at that. There was quite a lot of um 
focus on it so you know we said to them well what can we provide to help people to do what you want them to do um, and that was one of the ways we looked at it so so yeah I'd say team sport because you drop lots of information into an organization and they can just become completely overwhelmed by it and not know what to do with it so you know having that right let's work with you let's look at your priorities let's look at how we help you deliver on those priorities is part of it is really going to drive that success isn't it it's it's um it's, it, yeah too much is going to they're not going to do anything for anybody it's mm -hmm. getting it it's getting it focused and in a supported way so i can do, yeah, i re, i receive this i know what to do with it mm -hmm. and then did data become a strategic priority then um over at the um uh, nhsb sa so yeah it did it did because um I think, and, and a lot of this, and again, this, this goes back to, um, you know, how do you, how do you get interest excitement around the data? And actually internally, um, there wasn't, there wasn't that much excitement. I think people were worried mm. about, um, you know, all, all this new data and, or putting it in one place and they, they were, they were genuinely um, concerned. But when people from outside started to use it and started to talk about the data and how they were using it and what benefits it was bringing to their particular program, um, once that momentum started and you've got your your people who are benefiting talking about it, it's very difficult then to say, actually, no, we don't see the benefit of this anymore. So um, same, same probably with the role I'm in now, the part of the business I'm working with um, you know they're really excited <laughs> about what we're doing and they're they're talking about how they're using data how they're using the insight that they're getting and you know that that's much more powerful than me as a person who works in data saying you need to focus on data you need to spend money on data because they can really they can really sell it from their perspective um which is goes back to the the point we you know we were talking about when we spoke um yesterday about you know engagement and how you use stakeholders because you know they they tell the story as much as data leaders need to tell the story mm -hmm. absolutely and it's interesting that you mentioned that okay you need to get people excited which is like crucially important even if we think about like selling anything um again sales does have this bad rep and these negative connotations around it because a lot of times we still think about sales as I don't know, like a, a ready uh, used car salesperson from the seventies trying to push like an old Chevy, but that's not, that's actually false. This is not how sales works. In fact, as a professional, you need to sell ideas all the time. It's more like a responsibility. And uh, I actually see people being averse to that responsibility and they say, oh, you know, I don't, I don't want to sell, sell things, but you do have to. I mean, if you want to, if, if let's say you have something valuable in this case, it's truth really that you can drive from different capabilities that the organization would not have access to you still have to sell that truth and you break yeah. through a lot of resistance and as you said like getting the excitement is crucial so during these even if you think about uh, like small businesses pitching to uh, uh, investors um we we know this space and basically what you want to do in this in the psychological journey is first create curiosity 
then that transforms into intrigue then that transforms into interest and want so that the, the, there is that arc which after you've earned that that interest and that excitement then you can talk about how do i make you confident in my ability to deliver on this so there is that journey and ultimately what what we're doing is moving from excitement to trust so uh basically from your perspective how important was this specific element of building trust after you got them excited to actually deliver on some of those expectations maybe over deliver on what they anticipated and build trust in order to become a trusted advisor uh was that something that you did intentionally was that something that played a crucial role so, um with, with the, the project i'm 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 working on at the moment we've had um very much business, the, the people who are going to be using the end product, very much center of, of the, the project, involved in the project. So they understand um, everything about the complexities of, you know, how do you get data from over here through this sausage machine out to the other side that's in a in a format that, that we can use it. And, and they've come on the journey with us. So they've, um, they've been through the experiences with us as well. And I think from that perspective, they've got a lot more of a, an understanding of, you know, the capabilities because we've solved problems together. We've, we've gone through so much together that I think it would be hard now for them not to be able to, to trust us. So I definitely think there's real value in, you know, bringing people into the experience, bringing them into the team to to see, you know, how it all works and, and what what's actually happening under the bonnet. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose in a way it's it's quite nice with data in that, you know, you, if you can prove the numbers add up, <laughs> um, you know, there, there's one there's one way to to gain some trust, um, but also being able to demonstrate that data is safe is another thing that mm. you know that, that people are, are um, particularly worried about and I um, you know one of the, the things that, that we've been looking at is okay well how do we make sure that we anonymize uh, data by default so that once it's gone from its secure environment through to a reporting analytics layer people can't can't see an individual so so there's lots of ways I mean there's committees there's we've been I've been to numerous um, boards and committees to talk about let them have a pick over the design um, you know what what could go wrong um, and people always ask you know how things might go wrong can somebody get in can they can they steal the data and being able to, to demonstrate no this is how we're securing this this is the this is what we're doing um, so again, I suppose it goes back to team sport, doesn't it? It's it's that ensuring that everybody who's who's got a in a, in your organisation who's got oversight of particular parts of it that you are engaging them at some point and making sure that that they're really comfortable with with what's going on. And and I spent a lot of time talking to people, you know, warming them up about this is what we're doing. This is when we're going to need your support. What do you need us to do to be able to help you make a decision? So. Um, so yeah, I think as as a data leader, you spend a lot of time engaging with people to check. Because in my early career, um, I <laughs> I got derailed by data protection officers on on a few occasions, um, mm. which then ended up as you know, if you've gone too far down a project and then and then you're you're having the standoff with the DPO, it's not great. So you want to take the DPO on the journey as well. So yeah, there's a lot of people to take on the journey. 
Mm-hmm. And those also boils down to data maturity, uh, I imagine. Uh, when you uh, uh, move to AXA, so AXA, uh, AXA Health, you spent just over a year there. Were they in a different uh, state of data maturity than uh, uh, the NHS? And then, then basically you entered into a role as head of data strategy. Was there already a data strategy that you had to run or did you have to build it from, uh, uh, from scratch? So um, there, there has been a data strategy um, at AXA. So I suppose the main difference between um, public and, and private sector is that, and, and this is going to sound really awful, but mm. it is it is easier to um, to make a business case and and get big investment, um, particularly if if you're in a, a larger sort of national organisation. So I guess that. Um, that's one thing, uh, and and the way you get funding, of course, in public and, and private organisations is different. So there was a data strategy there. Um, it it wasn't perhaps being implemented in the way it was supposed to, and I guess that there'd been a lot of um, shareware created um, that was very very broad. <laughs> and um, so what I did when when I got there was I said, well look, let's let's try and narrow this down to what things can we start to look at that are really going to help us accelerate what we're trying to do here? And again, because it's it's a health company and because we have GDPR in um, in this country in Europe where we're looking at how we um, you know keep data safe. There's also with with health data. There's the added um, complexities of uh, what the doctors are allowed to do with data, which which does make things slightly more tricky. So the first thing to look at there was really, okay, what, what's our what's our strategy for, for making sure everyone's comfortable that we're compliant? Because that was that was where they were at. They were slightly concerned about that. So that that was really where I spent a lot of my focus and also in building up their data science team. So um, they had uh, a couple of data scientists there. So we were looking, I was working with them to look at, well, where are our use cases? How do we build up that data science backlog? Um, and sort of coming at it from two angles, really. So you've got the, the sort of the higher analytics bit. There's some value to be dropped here, but also, okay, we need to sort out the, the real fundamentals. So everybody's comfortable that we're going to use this technology to get this data into a state where we can really start driving some value from it. And I think that showing you could have some drops of value helped to make the argument that it's really worth us sorting out this big problem over here. So that was that was where we were there with AXA. Um, and then, yeah, move, moved on to Just. Mm. So what happened there? So what were what is your mandate now? What was your mandate when they hired you? Why did they hire you? And then what was the the, the grand project that you needed to embark on? So just just is um, is going through an awful lot of transformation at the moment. So digital transformation, um, and therefore part of that is obviously needing a good data strategy as well because you can't do digital without good data mm-hmm. so um so i was brought in to basically do data transformation for them and build out their data capabilities so um we've yeah we've made a good start um we've got now we've got an enterprise platform we are looking at how we build out more of our data capabilities um 
but again we're looking at everything from uh, you know how we look after and govern data through to the use cases for uh, machine learning and what we're doing there so most of what we're doing you know the data platform is at the center of with lots of um, services hanging off of that so it's it's very it's very exciting because <laughs> it's um it's quite it's quite a diverse it's quite a diverse organization there are different parts of it that do different things so um everyone's looking at, at using like in any organization everyone's looking at look, using data in a different way and every time you talk to somebody they've got an interesting new use case that they want to bring to life so it's um it's it's really nice to be able to to deliver on that for people that's that's the thing that is exciting but i'm not going to lie you know we've had challenges with um recruitment i think everyone's having challenges with recruitment at the moment um that's that's been quite hard so you know we've worked with a partner to help us get to where we've got to at the moment um we're now looking at you know what do we do about continuing to build our data capabilities um so we're looking at boot camps um how we can maybe encourage some people internally to to move across to data roles um mm. what we're we going to do next year how do we attract graduates how are we going to support those graduates to to get the skills that they need to to work with us in the team so that's that's been the new challenge i suppose this year um mm. <laughs> is actually is actually building those skills with the people um with your hands tied behind your back when it comes to recruitment Mm. So recruitment is a very interesting uh, subject here because, again, it boils down to sales. It boils down to you need to sell your function. You need to sell the opportunity to the person. You got to make it genuinely attractive. You have to make it exciting. And then again, there's no way around having to communicate that the right way. So one aspect of sales, if we think about, let's say uh, you think about selling anything. Well, you need good leads to sell to. So you, you have to know who you are targeting first. Then you need to have some volume of that pool of people. And then you got to be able to convert these individuals into, in this case, your, uh, your data scientists. So, uh, one part of it, of course, is that you can work with recruiters and they can deliver more people to you. But then you having to convert those individuals, well, it's up to you. So what do you think are the keys to make the opportunity attractive? Uh, do they, and I, I'm, I would be curious about maybe your take on this as a data leader. Like, do they buy into mm -hmm. you as a leader? Is it about the exciting opportunities that you give them? Is it about the benefits? Like, what, what have you observed to be the keys to be successful in this? And I know that no one has the silver bullet because if you did, then you wouldn't have the challenge. So one of the interesting um, things that I, I uncovered quite a while back and I don't know if it's still true today because I'll be honest with you guys I've been lacking in, <laughs> in CVs at the moment but one of the really interesting things that that I that I saw was when we advertised roles um that were at a more mature level <clears throat> with a deep with with a decent salary we got fewer applicants when we advertised a role with a career progression we got loads of applicants. Mm -hmm. So when when we advertised um, for a, I think it was a junior data scientist, we were inundated with people, many of whom 
could have quite easily just applied to be a data scientist because they had the right skills, they had the right um, qualifications. So, so that was interesting. So I, I do think that, uh, you know, many data professionals are looking for career progression, um, career development and skills development. Um, and actually, if you can offer that, and you can demonstrate that you know you're working on modern technology. You're willing to to train people to use that technology. I, I think that's that's a real winner. Um, I suppose the the problem then comes is how much time do you have to you know to train those people up to get up to speed with with what you need them to do, um, which is where partners do come in useful, um, and you, you know your, your sort of contractor skills, but yeah, I think I think the opportunity to to grow is one of the big things that that gets people to apply. Mm. That and um, I know a lot of people now prefer to be remote working. Mm. That's another trend that we've seen, um, which actually is is fine, particularly I think for data engineering type people who <laughs> need to be really concentrating. Um, I don't have a don't have a problem with that at all um so yeah I think there's that flexibility and that growth you know I'm joining you are you going to invest in me as an individual um because if, if you can demonstrate you're going to do that I think you're, you're more onto a winner to get to attract good people hmm. so you, you mentioned growth and uh, improving skills specifically so what do you observe to be the critical skills for that kind of individual right now, data science people? Because there are all kinds of skills that they can acquire. It can be technological. It can be uh, more on the soft skills side of things, communications, sales. So what do you think, first of all, are very, very useful and impactful for the data capability in the organization? Mm -hmm. And also, what are they interested in and where would they like to, to grow? Do you have any insights on that? Um, so previously, data, data scientists I've recruited have been quite excited about the technology, what technology are they using, um, but that's been, that's been quite key. Um, I, I think one of the key skills for a successful data scientist is, is curiosity um, and how that person gets to the root cause of what what is it that you're trying to to do and it's it's a bit beyond that to the point of what is it that you're trying to do and what can I what can I do to get you beyond what you're trying to do I don't know if I'm explaining myself very well here but um so you know you can you can listen to someone and hear what they want to do and build them that or you can really dig into what's the problem, you know, really dig into why are you trying to mm -hmm. do this and then come back with a, you know, a solution for them, which might not be what they think it is. Because many people, as us data people know, um, people will come to you with their solution. This is how, this is what I think I need. And don't, you know, it takes a really, a really good analyst or data scientist to go back and say you know all right just tell me tell me how you do this on a daily basis what's happening where are your pain points and sort of look a bit more holistically and understand that problem to go back with something okay I'm going to build you something else because 
this is what you actually need to be able to to do what you need to do and i i think those those are the skills if you've got those skills the data science skills can be built on um that's that's the bit you know it's that what's it hire for attitude train for the train mm -hmm. for the role it's it is really that grasp of getting under the under the skin of what is the business problem here and i've seen that done really really well you know that the partner that we've just been working with i mean they they spoke to this one guy <laughs> he was just amazing i mean he he spoke to so many people from across the organization and um and just got it you know i know what you're trying to do yep i get that yep 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 and then you know then pulled that together and said this is this is what you need to be able to do that um and these are all the use cases that, that will be able to be and that's such a skill such a skill because you can be very good technically and just not have that at all mm -hmm. i think you definitely like hit the spot there and said that you don't know if you you're explaining yourself properly i think you explained it amazingly because this is what we've been seeing all around first of all cvs are in high demand it's really difficult to find the right people it's really difficult to hire them when you hire them they are expensive and it's very difficult to retain them so you have this yeah. it, it, like amazingly and uh, astoundingly costly capability in a business that can do so much. The potential is vast, especially because the technology piece is just getting more and more capable. It's it's expanding. It's in a lot of ways actually the technology is becoming more optimal even on the cost side of things. So there are all kinds of things that you could do, but. What we see is that this potential is not being fulfilled because of a lack of it's a skill gap with the data scientists and that skill gap is not that they don't know the right algorithms or they don't have the uh, competence to work with technology i mean that's what they do a lot of times these people are phds and th that's that, that's all they know and exactly that ability to ask the right questions it's almost like why is this not being taught like you, you can't get uh like there, there's no business school that teaches this course specifically there's no targeted education in this field even though the benefits are huge imagine an organization spending literally like millions usually tens of millions every year in these people and they're bleeding from from like all kinds of all kinds of holes in this because they are losing talent uh they are building the the, the wrong solutions that they are not being used that damages the trust that's being put in the data capabilities and only if they knew to ask the right questions right yeah yeah exactly exactly it is it is it is a real it is a real skill and also that that um i suppose trust in trust in themselves because it, it's it's a bit you know ask someone what they want and i say a faster horse when you could build them a car and and I, I i think some of that as well you know um what i get frustrated with is this assumption that everyone wants to click buttons on a dashboard Mm -hmm. And and I, I sort of challenge my teams and say, well, do they really? Or could you bob them an email that says you need to look at this today because it's gone out of range or, or whatever? Um, and I think that's that's part of that's part of challenging how how we work. Um, you know, what's the right solution for that person? Yeah, the dashboard might look really pretty. But actually, what do they really? What are they trying to get to? How do they mm -hmm. get there really quickly? Um, and that's part of that's a. I, I do think that's a real skill um, that 
and, and that kind of skill comes with experience, which is part of the, the problem when you're looking at, a, 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 you know, roles that are so new that, that are attracting younger people to them is that 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 approach they don't they haven't got that experience yet to to be able to really think about the consequences of doing things this way rather than that way and no it doesn't provide them with a dashboard but do they do they really want to be fiffing around with a dashboard when they could just have the information directly when they need to look at it and not have to look at it so yeah there's there's um it is it is a real it is interesting it is mm. really interesting i often think that if you could just put a you know a, 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 a maybe a process re-engineer a data scientist and a, a, a business analyst together and just say just go off and do marvelous things <laughs> they would absolutely solve most world problems <laughs> absolutely and it's, just it's let them that... go just let them go <laughs> no totally and and uh you mentioned that uh not everyone would like to press buttons on the dashboard. But why is that the assumption? And it, and it really comes from, as you said, that we need to find a way to change how individuals think. It's not just data scientists, by the way. It's a universal issue. There's this guy called Chris Voss. I don't know if you've heard of him. He used to be the lead negotiator for the FBI. And he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference, which is ultimately a negotiation book. It's about how to negotiate. And you think about negotiation, it's kind of like a bartering thing. How do I, how do I, I don't know, manipulate someone into giving me a better price? Not at all. Again, that's completely the wrong assumption because you make these deals all the time during your smallest interactions during your average day as well. When you try to negotiate a deal, basically deals get made when both parties like the deal. We both like the deal. We're both happy with what the deal will give us. It's like a mutual, mutually beneficial thing. But how do you get that? Well, it's about finding the real interest of the other person and then kind of giving up your preferences. Maybe even temporarily, it's important that you like the deal too, but really putting yourself into the other person's shoes, applying empathy. I know it's being mentioned all the time, empathy, empathy, empathy. It's kind of like a buzzword, but if you actually understand what empathy is and what it can do for you when you when you try to look at the world through the eyes of the person that you're trying to influence, that would actually allow you guys to, to find something real. Because if you don't do that, you can have the assumption that I need to build a dashboard. They can kind of just you know go along with what you're saying because they don't understand what they need either. And if you don't put the work in and it's not informed based on some, some real world experience as well, then you end up building the wrong solution to the uh, to the wrong people. So uh, th that's really interesting. And uh, I would love to like dig into this uh, a little bit more. Maybe I can do it in a, a, another time, but I'm also trying to be conscious of the conscious of, of, of the clock here. But do you have any, any other <laughs> insights around this? I, I think part of it is, is to do with um, the way, the way people are taught um, when it comes to data. It, it is very much as a very heavy bias on um presentation data visualization um and maybe you know that feels a bit scary for for mm -hmm. somebody who's who's been taught it's all about making things look good and telling telling the story data storytellers mm -hmm. you know telling the story with data to to move ourselves away from that it goes back to trust again doesn't it do do i trust that do i need both things you know if, if i think about my bank i want to be able to log in and see what's happening in my account but I also don't want to rely on them to rely on me looking in and going every day 
oh my god that looks like it's fraudulent I want to rely on them to ping me to tell me if they think something's fraudulent so so there's a kind of dual thing going on here isn't there around what's the best way to do this um which it takes takes it out of the dashboard build a dashboard sphere exactly and it's such a good point that data storytelling data storytelling when we talk about data storytelling we actually specifically say that it's not about visualizing data sets by the way that's not a story story always have a always has a protagonist that's a very very many people miss it you know it's not a story <laughs> if i'm if i'm talking about if i'm talking about abstractions it becomes a story when there is someone at the center of the events and let's say when your bank just gives you raw data or even just raw information that's so different from actually them telling you how that information influences you because when i talk about how the information influences you and how that's relevant to you it just became a story because it's a story about you, right? And mm -hmm. that's actually the great challenge. And how you do this, by the way, to translate it again into the world of the data scientists is asking the right questions. So negotiation two, it's about finding, finding the actual interests, pain points, desires through asking the right questions. And it's, it's a whole art. It's, it's both an art mm -hmm. and a science. Um, so really good stuff, uh, uh, Nina. I would love to, again, uh, talk more about this and uh, uh, maybe in the short thought leadership piece that we will do with you, we can explore a little bit more. But um, before we land the plane, which unfortunately we will have to do soon, um, what would be your personal recommendations for the aspiring uh, data leaders of the future? The decade of data is upon us. And I think you already mentioned a bunch of things, but if you had to summarize maybe a few key insights from your uh, experience, uh, what would be your top recommendations, top tips for the leaders of the future? Ooh, so my, my, my top tip is understand your business strategy and make sure that everything you do is supporting that strategy and everyone knows how it's supporting that strategy. That's my recommendation. Um, amen. I think uh, everyone can uh, take this and map it onto their own uh, career and business processes. I think the other, the other bit of advice I would give is, um, is, is, you know, reach out to other people who are in similar roles, talk to them, most people are experiencing the same pain points someone will work out how to how to solve it and then you all learn from it i think the data community is a really sharing community um and and you know benefit from that take take the benefit from it uh, those would be my my two pieces of advice Absolutely. Actually, even with the data storytellers, you know, without plugging anything, um, because the podcast, again, it's not sponsored. It's just we do it because we, we like it and it's fun. Uh, but when we actually work with you guys in a meaningful way, that's what we found that you get the most value from, which is bringing you together and then sharing experiences in a meaningful way and around the right subjects. So uh, really enjoyed this conversation, Nina. Thank you for your insights. And we hope to see you soon again. Look forward to it. Thank you.